Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Susan Thompson of Colgate University. I'm a host on New Books Network and African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for tuning in. I'm really excited today to have Michaela Rong, an investigative journalist based in the UK with me today. She's written a new book on post-genocide Rwanda, which we'll get to in a second. She's also written three other books on African politics, um, places and people that I admire, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Eritrea, and Kenya. I think it's a brave undertaking to switch to Rwanda, but uh, we'll get into that in a second. I found over the years that each of Rong's books are glorious in their storytelling, told in great detail. Uh, through years and years of personal and professional engagement with the, the subjects of the book in their home communities. And I think that's really the value of her writing. We get to hear from people in their place. So I'm super delighted to have Michaela with me today to talk about her forthcoming book on Rwanda titled Do Not Disturb, the story of a political murder and an African regime. God, bad. Michaela, welcome. Um, thank you for having me, and thank you for that lovely introduction. I, I'm going to make a little correction. Sure. That I have actually written a, a novel as well. Oh, look uh, at you. Which is, yeah, and it, it didn't get published in the States, but it's okay. available on Amazon.co.uk. And right. it's, um, it was, uh, it's basically based in Eritrea, and it's a book about a border dispute with a female protagonist of a lawyer. And uh, I found that when I had written my book on Eritrea, I didn't do it for you. I still wanted to engage with the subject, so I did it in fictional form. Uh, and oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, um, I first came to know your work through your work in Eritrea. I was completely smitten with the way that you told the story and just the imagery of the train on the side of the mountain and all the um, military installations of um, technology um, towers and cell phone and surveillance and so on, which, of course, probably served you well when you were working on Rwanda. So that's that's my first question. What is your book about and why did you write it? That's a two-parter. Um, yes, uh, Rwanda, wh what I find in my career is I often go back to places uh, where I started off. I haven't only worked in Africa. I've worked in Europe quite a big, uh, quite a lot of the time, but um, mm -hmm. at a certain stage, I moved to Africa and then sort of stayed uh, that remained my focus. And, and I've often found myself coming back to stories that I encountered quite early on as a news agency reporter, a reporter for Reuters. Um, and so when I was based in what was then Zaire as a news agency reporter, um, I found myself sucked into the genocide, uh, the Rwandan genocide story, because it was happening right next door. I'd been in Kinshasa, the capital of Zaire, for a couple of months, and suddenly there was this enormous story. And like most people, I didn't know anything about Rwanda and ended up spending quite a lot of time in first with the French troops, Operation Turquoise, and mm -hmm. then spending a lot of time in those enormous refugee camps that formed on the border between Zaire and Rwanda, and meeting, you know, people in the in the Rwandan patriotic front, seeing the very obvious evidence of genocide, atrocities committed by Hutu, uh, the Hutu outgoing Hutu government, um, attending press conferences staged by the, the outgoing Hutu regime, what was left of them. Um, and it was a very intense time, and I find that my memories of it are very vivid. 
And I think all the journalists who worked there then have these very intense recall, this very intense recall of that time. Um, and, and, um, and then I sort of drifted away, did other things, started writing books, stopped being a sort of full-time journalist. Mm-hmm. But I kept in touch with a few of the people that I'd met. And one of them was this man, Patrick Karagaya, who had been uh, very close to Kagami. He was the person that when you went to interview Kagami, you would meet him in the vestibule and he would chat. He was always very friendly. He was an easy person to get along with, a very funny man. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, I had heard he got into trouble with the regime and I wasn't really surprised because he was always a bit free with his opinions. And I heard that things in Rwanda were getting a little bit rigid and authoritarian. Uh, but generally, my impression of, of, of Rwanda was, you know, it was it had been a massive relief where the Rwandan Patriotic Front had, had come in, the genocide had ended, and then, you know, there were all these stories of rebuilding and, you know, it had been the most extraordinary trauma and the, the repair work was being done. But um, people were sort of, there were unhappy stories emerging, stories that conflicted and clashed with that narrative. And I remember meeting Patrick, hearing he'd fallen out of favour, meeting him in Kigali when he was a very disillusioned and upset, emotionally upset man. Mm-hmm. Um, and then meeting him again when he'd fled into exile in South Africa. And each time he would be a bit more open, but you you just sort of ask a few questions because, you know, I was intrigued. <laughs> Why had he fallen out with the regime? Why had he felt necessary to go into exile? And then one day I woke up and there were all these messages on my email list saying, have you heard about Patrick? And I, I remember my instant reaction was to think it was a reference to a, a lovely Kenyan cameraman um, called Patrick. Um, and I thought, oh my God, he's been killed in a car crash. Yeah, yeah. And then I clicked on messages and it wasn't that Patrick, it was Patrick Karagaya, former head of external intelligence of Rwanda, who had been found strangled in his hotel room in Johannesburg. And rather obviously uh, this was <laughs> the work of the Rwandan regime that his former employer, employees, <laughs> employers, um, right. And, uh, and, you know, Kagami was his, uh, his old friend. Um, and I just sort of thought, my God, how did, how did we get from there to this? Um, you know, what, what happened along the way? Um, and um, I thought, gosh, that's a good story. And um, I had had a few conversations with Patrick whenever I'd gone through South Africa. And I had said to him, Patrick, you know so much, you, you have to write a book. And if you want to write a book, let me help you. I'll, I'll, I'll ghost write it for you. But you, you know, you must write down what you know. And he had sort of waved it away and said, oh, don't, you know, I don't have time. And uh, I don't think that would be looked on very kindly by the South Africans uh, because they depended, him and his, his colleagues depended on South Africans for political asylum. Um, and I thought, well, he's, He's dead now. He can't write that story, but maybe I can piece together what he should have written. Um, and so I reached out to the family, and that was where it all started, really, because I thought if the family don't want to talk to me, then I can't go any further. But if they do want to talk to me, I might just pursue this. And the family were extremely willing to talk. Very, really, really, they wanted to tell that story. Um, and then, you know, one thing, what happens with uh, journalism is one one thing leads to another and you keep discovering more and more things and you're more and more astonished. Um, you're astonished by what you discover, but also by your own ignorance. And I was amazed that all those years that I sort of occasionally would have had lunch with Patrick, that he hadn't told me more of what 
he was up to and what was going on, you know, um, sure. this sort of weird cat and mouse game that he'd been playing with the regime back in Kigali. Um, and I just thought, this is a fascinating story. And it tells you so much about what happens when a revolution goes bad. Uh, and so that's, that's, why I, that's why I decided to write the book. Well, I'm really glad you did, because one thing I really admired about the book, of course, for listeners who don't know, Rwanda experienced a genocide, um, April 1994. Lots of disputed facts there were the F uh, RPF, the now ruling uh, party, then a rebel organization involved, if they were to what extent. And of course, your book doesn't take the genocide as a starting point, which I really appreciated, because often what we know about Rwanda is mutated, for lack of a better word, through the experience of the genocide. And you really paint this delicate human story of a man, you know, born in Uganda, but, but lots of regional ties. And it's more than, for me, it's more than a, you know, a story of a political murder. It's a story of a region and it's a story of a regime that is truly a bad neighbor. This is not a great family member, um, not a good neighbor in a very complex region. And one thing I also particularly appreciated, you know, the foreign donors don't get off easy. Um, South African government is painted, you know, its agents and all their complexity. And for me, as someone who studied Rwanda for a long time, I think that's what I appreciated most. So half of your title is an African regime gone bad. What's what's the bad here? Where did they go? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think um, that that's what I wanted to track. and. Um, uh, I remember having a conversation actually with a friend who, who wrote a book about the Great Lakes and saying, where do these guys come from? That's what I want to know. Why are they the way they are? Because, um, you know, um, my assessment and uh, opinions on the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which seized power, you know, in 1994 um, and has been controlling and running the country ever since, has changed enormously. You know, I was, I was, I would have been a great cheerleader for them back in 1994 because you were surrounded by death and it was really yeah. obvious, you know, who had done the killing and you could smell. I mean, the, the, most of us have the sort of horrible aroma in our, our nostrils because the, the, the evidence of sort of atrocities was so obvious and it was, um, and we knew who'd been doing it. Um, uh, but uh, so so sort of I went from thinking, oh, my God, at least these people, they've 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 stopped that. Uh, and then, um, you know, as the years went by, uh, a lot of evidence started coming forward. And that, like a lot of people at the beginning, I simply didn't want to listen to that evidence. I, I found it really hard to believe it didn't gel with the people I'd met, these very driven, puritanical, disciplined, Earnest, straight yeah. talking, you know, from their physique to the way they dressed, to the way they interacted with journalists. They seemed, you know, straight kind of guys doing the right thing in incredibly difficult circumstances. And then as these evidence and these testimonies and these reports came through, you just began to think, Okay, so there was another side to the story too, which is, uh, yes, a horrific genocide. But in the run-up to the genocide, there had been a huge amount of, of brutal killings um, perpetrated by the RPF, which journalists didn't see um, and didn't make the cameras um, and have only sort of subsequently uh, come out. And 
you know, I, I reassessed my attitude to the Rwandan Patriotic Front. And also, um, you know, as this new evidence was emerging and it became harder and harder to simply ignore it, you also realized that the regime was changing um, and that it had gone from being, you know, very carefully, you know, the first post-genocide government had, uh, you know, prominent Hutu civilian politicians within it, people like um, Seth Sendachonga, the interior minister, um, Fostan Twagaramungu, mm-hmm. and, and it was sort of signaling to the world that we're not ethnic xenophobes, you know, we're, <laughs> we want to share power, you know, we're not like the guys we replaced. But the, the reality was that as years went by, those people either ended up in exile or in jail, or they were simply assassinated. Yep. Um, and the role of the RPF in that couldn't be denied. And, you know, I began to look at the sort of many of these RPF guys, including Patrick Karagaya, uh, with slightly new eyes and more jaundiced eyes. Uh, and then you got this this phenomenon developing where a lot of those people who'd been very, very high up, Tutsis who'd been very high up in the Rwandan Patriotic Front and very close to Kagame and had touted the line of the, the RPF and Kagame as the, 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 this, this puritanical, virtuous, morally upright, disciplined rebel movement that had ended a sort of a, a Holocaust-type atrocity, um, they started to leave the country and they came out with stories of um, corruption, of um, uh, uh, assassination, of uh, repression, of people disappearing, um, uh, of, uh, you know, you began to see the sort of worms squiggling underneath the rocks. Um, And this was coming from people who'd been very high up in the regime. Um, And Patrick Karagai was one of those people, but he wasn't the only one. Um, And uh, then you sort of want to sort of know, okay, so at what stage did this start, this this process? You know, how much is it that I didn't want to see these things? And how much is it that actually the movement changed. Um, and I think both things are true. I think that the journalists concerned uh, were very naive, for good reason, to be honest, sure. uh, because they had seen such horrors that, you know, it was very, uh, people wanted to believe that that change meant, you know, an end to, to, to the piles of bodies, you know, hidden in, um, piled up in, in church aisles. Um, uh, but uh, the journalists had been had been naive and willful uh, thinking, but so had um, all the donors and the the Western countries that dealt with the RPF. And while that was completely understandable back in the nineties, I don't think it's you know it's um, permissible now. Um, and I think it, it it's sort of well past time that people noticed who is leaving Rwanda, why are they leaving, who has died there, what kind, what's the nature of the people who have disappeared, what did they represent, what were they trying to do, and and you can't ignore those elements anymore, and to his credit, Patrick Karagai was one of the people who was trying to highlight that and speaking openly about that from exile once he had left. Yeah, I mean, you've raised so many good points and we don't have a lot of time. So I just want to focus in on a few. Karagay, of course, um, high up in the RPF, a founding member. You trace in the book his um, Ugandan roots, uh, comparing those to those of Paul Kagame, for example, other senior RPF 
officials narrowing in, much to my fascination on the Luero Triangle and, and the relationship between communities there, Museveni, Uganda's Museveni's NRM movement, the National Resistance Movement, how Rwandans became politicized, aware of their political rights, and sort of practiced in some way of this managing communities, manage, managing ethnic division in a way that seemed principled, in a way that seemed to uh, mark a, a beginning to the end of ethno, ethnic chauvinism in Rwanda. So that's one thing I think readers will really benefit from. You go so deep and so clear into the rise of the RPF and to the personalities behind it. And of course, choosing Patrick Karagea as you have, I think was um, exactly the right way to tell the story insofar as he was open in a way that Rwandans aren't open in part because of his Ugandan roots. He has this internal experience of the party. He is the man that you met at the vestibule, as you noted in your very beginning remarks. I met him there a few times too, and you're like, okay, I can deal with him. He's a jovial, fun, um, you know, lighthearted kind of person, which is not something that the RPF, of course, values um, with its um, pristine aesthetic, I guess I'm going to say. And that's my question for you. Um, did Karagea deserve to die in the way the RPF officials, um, leaders in Kigali said so? Is, is death just part of Rwandan political culture and it's none of our business? Um, I, I think that raises a, a really good question. I um, What I... I think I noticed when I was researching this book um, was um, the way Ugandans and people who had been in the Ugandan revolutionary movement of Yoweri um, Museveni, the NRM, the way they looked at Rwandan, their Rwandan former comrades who had fought with them in the Luwero Triangle uh, in the 1980s. And they, and then, you know, how they surveyed the way they had then gone on and invaded Rwanda and how they had behaved in Rwanda and neighbouring Congo. And Ugandans would, would always make it clear that they found it sort of shocking and distasteful that, in their view, their, their Rwandan mates, former mates, um, had, a, had a kind of, you know, were so casual about death. Uh, it didn't bother them. They, it almost seemed to have a sort of, love affair going with death sure. um uh, and i i think there is something quite profound there that rwandan culture and i i i don't have the right sort of anthropological uh background to explore it but i think there's something about rwanda with its its history of monarchical rule and this very intense war warlike kind of culture that goes back centuries and it's it's history of empire building uh, and going to war with neighboring chieftains that there is a, a sort of it's it's um a historian friend of mine Gerald Gerard Prunier talks about the samurai in Japan mm -hmm. that there's something a bit similar this kind of like defiance you know that that to be a man is is to sort of stare death in the eyes and not care um, and say, sort of bring it on, uh, which is very different from how the Congolese view life and, and the Ugandans view life. And I did, do think there may be something to that. Um, and and Patrick was a very interesting character, as are many of the members of the RPF who speak English and, and originated in Uganda, because there must have been some of that within him, but he was much more Ugandan. He 
he his family had um, had lived in Uganda for several generations. Um, so he was a, a Kenya Rwanda speaking uh, Ugandan whose ancestors came from Rwanda, but he had become thoroughly. Ugandan and the sort of easygoing, we can reach a compromise, um, not worth spilling blood over, let's find a way through this attitude that I think he always applied to things, um, was a very Ugandan way of dealing with crisis. And I don't believe it's a very intrinsically Rwandan way of dealing with things. And I think, you know, in a way, President Kagame, um, rep, you know, really does personify that sort of black and white, rigid, you know, you're either for us or against us. And, um, you know, we demand full total obedience. Um, and, and human life isn't worth very much. Um, and, and I think, uh, I, I think the trouble with um, the genocide in particular is it's left such deep scars um, on that region. And the, the point about the genocide in Rwanda is it it wasn't a solo episode, um, as, as you mentioned in your introductory remarks. There was a build-up to the genocide. There were massacres and pogroms and ethnic cleansing, not only in Rwanda, but in Burundi. And they fed into each other and created this climate in which genocide became a sort of way of dealing with a, an ethnic problem. Um, and I think... You know, the problem is once you've sown those seeds, it's terribly difficult to get rid of them. If, if, you, if you create this sort of expectation that the way you deal with a, a land shortage problem or uh, an ethnic sort of rivalry problem is just by killing people, that, that's a, a horrific step to have made. And I think once a, a society makes it, it's very difficult to unmake it. And I think that's going to be the challenge, because although in Rwanda there's a lot of talk of reconciliation and how nobody cares anymore whether you're Hutu or Tutsi, you're not meant to say you're just a Rwandan, it's a very skin-deep development. That I, I, I've, I, I mean, you can see from the numbers of people who leave Rwanda Mm -hmm. that, uh, and they will talk about this very openly, that they feel this is a completely cosmetic program, largely embraced to please Western donors. Um, and uh, the reconciliation, you know, hasn't, hasn't worked and hasn't, hasn't gone more than skin deep. Um, so I think that, that, that it's, a, it's a country which has it's been traumatised, terribly traumatised by its past, but it, it's not, uh, you know, it's still got a long way to go to to deal with it because I think that, that it's not being honest about what happened in the past. And one of the problems is you, you know, if you're, if you're going to be as dishonest about what happened in the past as the regime in Rwanda is in terms of like, you'll only believe or officially acknowledge that the victims of the genocide, they were all Tutsis who were killed by, Hutu, by the Hutu regime. And you won't admit or accept that there were, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people killed by your Rwandan Patriotic Front forces, um, then how can, you, how can you deal with that, that problem of, uh, of uh, ethnic hatred? So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's got tricky years lying ahead of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and that's one thing I appreciated about your book. It's not reconciliation, it's a tenuous coexistence, if anything. And one thing that comes through your book, and we see this in the scholarship of Gerard Prunier and many others, there is this ethnic chauvinism, this almost Tutsi supremacist idea embodied, I think, in the person of Kagami, which is part of the reason why 
men like Karagea fell out. They didn't agree with the um, supremacist ideas, the rewriting of history, the investment of government and military resources to produce this rewriting. So I find your book so powerful and I think it will stand the test of time in many ways that investigative journalism doesn't or perhaps isn't intended to because it gives us this deep cultural moment to think about what is it in Rwandan society, Rwandan political culture in particular through the hierarchies of dominion and the monarchical history and so on that creates a regime that is able to eat its own. And your book is so powerful because it's, you know, the story of a political murder, it's absolutely a political murder um, that Karagea experienced and his family has since lived through. And it's emblematic of Kagame's regime. You know, when he died, as you re recount in the book, senior officials, military officials, the minister of foreign affairs, Luis Mushikiwabo said, well, if you're gonna live like a dog, you die like a dog. And that doesn't sound right to foreign ears. So they have a completely different way of speaking to foreigners than they have speaking to their own people. And I find your book um, so profound in its ability to, to mediate these two audiences, the domestic audience and, of course, the foreign audience. And I think uh, I'm very keen to see what Rwandans who, who have chosen exile or been pushed into exile um, think of your books. I wanted to pivot with that comment. How did you do the research for your book? How, like, what was the process of mediating what people were telling you, trying to craft a narrative that is both complex and compelling? Um, it was very difficult because um, uh, I was aware from the get-go that uh, so many of the people I was going to be interviewing had, you know, <laughs> access to grind would be putting it mildly. Um, sure. They were people who'd fallen out with the regime, had been very close to the regime and had left. And so there were deep, deep, deep bitterness and grievance and upset there. Um, uh, so it, 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 was, it was very difficult because, um, and especially as I mentioned in my introduction, um, one of the things you, you always find when you're talking to Rwandans is, you know, every country has a stereotype of what they're like. So British people, are quite proud of the fact that everyone says they're very stiff and cold and you know <laughs> yeah. that that's their national stereotype and French people enjoy the fact that they're described as passionate and oversexed and uh, you know an Italian you know it's, there are all these sure. cliches and the cliche with Rwandans which Rwandans will tell you all the time is we're a nation of liars we do it yeah. very well and we'll doing it against you you know we'll be using that tool against you and that was told to me repeatedly um and then it became very because you sort of think huh so this is the whole culture <laughs> we're taking me telling me fibs is going to be part of the way of dealing with me as a foreign journalist uh, and people were constantly telling me about other people I was interviewing oh you need to to watch it oh he's a liar oh you can't trust the thing he says oh mm. you know oh no 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 he and and, uh, you know, so much so that sometimes you just sort of thought, well, who do I believe? Because these stories are all different. And uh, they, you know, so says me, he'll lie, he's lying. So that tells me the other one's a lie. Um, and, um, I mean, you, you do as much critiquing as you can. I, I found um, what I sometimes do in the book is simply say, these are the two versions. Take your pick. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's quite obvious they can't both be true. I honestly don't know which one is true, and you know, they've both got um, rationales behind them, and 
you know, you're just going to have to decide which one you, you want to go for. Uh, for example, the, the head of the inspirational leader of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, I just, uh, Fred Rajema, I just sort of say, I honestly don't know what happened, but these are the two versions. Um, uh, but the, 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 the other thing I ended up feeling was um, that I, I was talking about this with a Zimbabwean academic friend, and he said, but, you know, this is the nature of, uh, of, of reality. Human reality is like this. We all have a different take and a different, you know, memory of what happened, even events that happened a week ago. And especially if you're dealing with an oral culture, uh, where there's a lot of getting around the fire, especially if you're sort of rebels, you know, in the field. What do you do in the evening? You get around the fire and you talk and you talk and talk and conspiracy theories form and ideas and did so. And, and the talk goes on for decades and decades. And in the end, it's quite hard to separate the talk from what really happened. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, the, the, the fact that, something may not be uh, rooted in actual facts in a way doesn't mean it's not true. This is what my Zimbabwean academic um, friend, Miles Tendy was saying, because, um, you know, people believe something happened and they are convinced of it and then it becomes part of the story. So it may be fake news, but it, it's fake news that becomes part of the story because it then determines how people react, uh, the assumptions they make, um, the decisions they reach. So um, it was enormously frustrating to me not to be able to check more of stories and not to be able to sort of pin them down. But in the, you know, you just sort of have to accept them and that this is the nature of reality, especially in parts of Africa which were very badly covered at the time, where it was before mobile phones were yet what you know you could find a mobile phone on every corner. It was before the era of email. And um, things, news passed around by word of mouth, and word of mouth distorted yeah. the news. Um, so, I, I mean, in quite honestly, that old cliche of we will never know applies to an awful lot of the episodes in my book. Well, I think that's the power of your book. You leave it to us to decide. You're not moralizing. You know, I've read other books, and they're like, here's the truth about Rwanda, the capital T truth. I th I'm going to narrate to you now how the airplane, Haberi Mata's airplane returning from Arusha, the peace accords, his plane was down. You wrote about this in foreign policy in a, in, a, in a beautiful way a few years ago. People present that as fact. And I think your acknowledgement that if they believe it to be true, it is true in some way. Perception matters as much as reality because it shapes your reality. The Rwandan reality is so different based on your posture. And I think one of the values of your book and why I'm so excited to teach it to my students is that it's a great mediation. Here's what I found out in the process of my work. It's up to you as the reader to decide. And I think one thing that's sort of uh, the minimum, I think that foreign journalists, foreign writers, foreign scholars can do in writing about a country that is not their own. So I'm very excited to see, um, almost with some trepidation, if I'm honest, how your book will be received. Um, I've written a few books, uh, as you know well, and of course, it's never a good time when they come out because some people really have strong feelings against and other people have strong feelings for. Um, so I want to, you know, commend you for, for just a beautiful piece of like what I consider to be <laughs> scholarship, honestly. Um, I read it as a scholar, but I appreciated that it wasn't intended for scholars. 
and I, I hope your book gets a, um, a wide readership. So, you know, I've, I've kept you now for 30 minutes. I wonder if you have a question for me or something I haven't um, said that you would like our listeners to know about your, about your book. Um, we, we, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I could, I could talk for hours on it, obviously. No, I, well, of course, um, that's why I have to call it. I, I found, right, yeah, I mean, I, I found, I found writing this book agonizing, I have to mm -hmm. say, and it was partly because of that, um, problem with fact checking and, yeah. and that as an ex Reuters correspondent, ex BBC correspondent, you know, I, I was trained professionally to, <laughs> to get the facts right. And then the, the sort of sheer frustration of having one person tell you one thing and then another person, both of, both of these people, people you really trust, tell sure. you exactly the opposite. Um, and then having to sort of work your way through that minefield. Um, but it was also, I found it agonizing for other reasons. One was um, a lot of the episodes are very upsetting. Uh, I made a policy decision not to write very much about the genocide itself, that whole 100 days of slaughter from April onwards, partly because it had already been written about in such detail by the people. And, um, but also I, I just sort of thought, I don't think that the reader is going to be able to take, take this much slaughter. Um, you know, so I sort of, uh, um, I don't delve into that chat uh, that period uh, in, in, um, that much um, uh, but um, the the other reason I found it a very difficult um, book to write was because I was constantly worrying about the reaction sure um, and I know and you know I'd be very naive and stupid if I didn't think that firstly the regime's going to hate the book and I know enough about the press in Rwanda the media to know that they do their master's bidding. There isn't an objective, independent form of journalism in Rwanda today. And long before it was known that I was working on this book, I'd already been denounced as a racist and a colonialist and a genocide, you know, a genocide denier. I mean, that's all already happened, and I'm sure that that's going to become a sort of 24-hour-a-day accusation on Twitter and social media. Sure. But it wasn't just that. It was some... Um, it was also how um, Rwandans who, who aren't part of the regime would respond to this incredibly emotionally, you know, exhausting um, moment in their history and how I'm depicting it as a white outsider, of course. Um, uh, so that was a concern. And then also, you know, I'm very aware that there are huge numbers of respected academics and development officials who have engaged and donors and diplomats who've engaged with Rwanda over the years, many of whom are people I, I consider as friends um, and who thought Kagame was marvelous. Um, and that the work of the Rwandan government was doing in terms of de development and vaccinations and maternal health, sure. and primary school education, they had nothing but good things to say. They, they thought it was the most inspirational you know, um, model in Africa. And they will be very angry with me and they'll wonder what's come over me and they'll sort of feel, you know, why am I kind of laying into this African example of, of, of uh, you know, of feisty kind of 
you know, rebuilding a country that's been through so much and there I am kicking it. Um, why don't I pay credit where it's due? And the trouble is, I just don't believe that anymore. I mean, that's that, that whole picture is not one I can accept. And I, I'm actually sort of feel, I don't want to have that discussion with them, but I feel quite angry with some of those individuals because I sort of feel, come on, when the people that you were talking to on a regular basis, when you would visit Kigali, you would go and meet Patrick Haragai and the vestibule just as I did. And you went there much more than I did in those years. Um, and you must have seen how things were changing. And you must have seen that people like him were becoming unhappy. And when he fled and when the head of, you know, Theogen Rudasingwa, the head of Kigami's office fled, and when the head of the army fled, yeah. and when, you know, various people, various ministers were assassinated and, 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 and the sort of Supreme Court judges disappeared and journalists were found beheaded uh, and, and human rights investigators, you know, were jailed. And, you know, when all of those things happened and you were still engaging with Rwanda, did you not feel the odd twinge you know the odd qualm of disquiet and if you didn't why didn't you so um as I said the whole process has been really agonizing for me because all of that's been churning away my brain while I've been writing the book and it's it's quite hard to focus when you've got all those thoughts going around in your brain and every time you write a sentence you're thinking oh I know that's very contested oh this is very controversial oh I'm not sure I can say that um so I, I mean it was quite a slow book to write it took me four and a half years mm -hmm. um, and it really was because every step of the way I was thinking this is really controversial and this isn't what I'm supposed to say about this government, this regime, this history. This isn't the accepted, you know, version, but I just don't believe the accepted version anymore. That's why I think it's so genius about your title. Like do not disturb, of course, is the placard that hangs on um, hotel doors. Uh, Karagea himself was murdered in a hotel, as you know, but also the Rwandan regime does not want us, you know, foreigners, um, those who are against the vision for the country that Kagame and others hold, that we're not to disturb them. And I think where your book ends, and this is my last question for you, is on a fairly pessimistic note. You don't see uh, much changing in terms of political culture. You don't see Kagame loosening his grip. You know, Kagame, I think, gets away pretty easy in your book by by my read. You don't um, engage him too much, except vis-a-vis -vis Karagea. Karagea is front and center. Um, so that's my last question for you, Mikhail Arong. Um, What's Rwanda's future in your view? Are we returning um, yeah, to violence? Or? Um, I, 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 I hate it when people... Um, um, predict a return to violence. And I used to get really annoyed when people would say to me, well, Rwanda's just headed for another genocide, because I sort of thought, you can't say that. You know, you can't, you can't so blithely imagine that scenario. Um, but I do think that the country is in trouble because um, it has so many secrets, um, which it's not acknowledging. And because um, you have this, this fake narrative that is premised on a very large part of the population, the Hutu community, being constantly told that they were solely responsible for all the, the genocide and the atrocities that, that took place in 1994, and a, a failure of the regime to admit that uh, they committed any wrongdoing. Uh, and that's a, that's a massive lie, and I don't think you can build um, 
a new society, a new, you know, a healthy uh, nation on 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 those foundations. Um, I, I also think that if you look at the the region, I mean, what you've seen in Africa recently, over the last decade and a half, is this this sort of phenomenon of, um, um, uh, you know, what we what were thought to be enlightened, you know, Renaissance leaders, as Tabo and Becky once called them, the Masebanis, the Malasanaris, the Osaya Safawerki, you know, Kagame. Um, you know, they, they've all turned out to be Renaissance in a slightly different way. Uh, they're all clinging to power. They're, in some cases, grooming their children as successors. Um, they've got their hands in the till and are piling up huge fortunes. Um, and they're not going to leave um, because they're surrounded by coteries and cronies who have too much to lose. So even if they wanted to leave, they won't be allowed to. Um, and it's, um, you know, if you look at um, Uganda, Tanzania, um, Rwanda, um, it's it's not a pretty picture at the moment. I mean, it's I, I do find it very depressing. Um, uh, I mean, Congo's in a slightly more interesting stage, but but if you're somebody who's been visiting that part of the world since the 90s, the mid 90s, which I have, you look at it and you just sort of think, wow, I mean, these, um, these are uh, the old, they used to call people like Mobutu and, and Bongo um, the, and Moy, the dinosaur leaders. But, but, you know, they all left. And then now we have this new generation of dinosaur leaders and all the same phenomenon of repression, cutting off the internet, cracking down or killing journalists, you know, bad human rights records, rigged election, oppositions that aren't allowed to operate, um, donors who are sort of either played with or told to take a hike. Um, I mean, I, I feel we're sort of, you know, back to the future. So I am a bit pessimistic at the moment uh, in, the, in that particular area. Um, and, you know, especially I haven't mentioned Ethiopia, but if you look what's happening there, I do yeah. feel we've sort of gone right back to the Mengistu era now. 1989 um, all over again. Yeah, I mean, it's really frightening uh, and, and uh, with very little Western interest because the Cold War is over and all the West cares about now, as far as Africa is concerned, is, is the war on Islam. Um, mm. So, yeah, I am a bit pessimistic, but then my friends would tell you I've always been a pessimist. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I share your view to some extent. I think it was a, a great way to end the book. Um, it's also a great way for us to end our interview together. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for being so forthright. Um, Feel free with your ideas. I really appreciate it. I've been speaking to Michaela Rong, her new book forthcoming in March 2021, Do Not Disturb, the story of a political murder and an African regime gone bad. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for showing such an interest.